0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound.
1: You're about to hear an experiment in communication.
0: ReSound is a remix. Music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and audio oddities we find all over the world. There really is no corner we haven't scoured, no rock we haven't looked under, no heights we have not scaled. To find, for you, the best and most interesting audio being produced on the air or the Internet. (laughs) Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience. If one thinks of the list
2: that Edison made when he invented sound recording, what for us are some of the more typical uses of recording music, for example.
3: There's a little flag train
2: We're very low on his list. And towards the top of his list was the preservation of the voice of those who will be dead.
4: Hero. Hero.
2: Hero. And in fact... What are the voices we hear on radio? So many of them are the perpetuated voices of the dead. This
5: is Portia on March 12, 1973.
2: Everything
5: all right? Yes, I suppose so.
2: Not only does it eternalize the voice, but radiophonic broadcast diffuses this voice. We're surrounded on the airwaves by the voices of the
0: dead. Young people especially can be preoccupied with the meaning of life older people, myself included, the meaning of death. Not everybody feels this way, of course, and not all the time, but it is a reality that looms larger and larger the closer you get to it. But it doesn't have to be all hand-wringing, wailing, and ladies in black veils, at least not today on ReSound. A year and a half after Nora Harrington's father died, at the age of 53, she was still trying to sort through her feelings about mortality. So she did something that most of us would avoid. She confronted the topic head on. She had a series of frank, intimate conversations about the end of life with a few elderly friends, her grandfather and her mother. Her story is called Little Black Train. We have to be mindful.
6: Of the fact that we are all going to experience death.
2: It's gonna come. The only thing I'd like to do is get out now that I'm able and enjoy life with my grandkids and my children.
1: Well, I think if you believe in hereafter, it's an easier process to get old and die because you have a future, your
3: spiritual future.
7: I wish I could just stop the clock. Stop the
3: clock. There's a little black train a coming, coming down the track. You gotta ride that a little black train, but it ain't gonna bring you
8: back. My name's Jerry Harrington, and I am the mother of Nora Harrington and Addie Harrington, and the widow of Dennis Harrington, who died seventeen months ago, at the age of fifty-three.
9: Now sit comfortably however you want. <laughs> What has been the purpose of dad's death in your life? How can you say a purpose? The purpose of a death? For the past year, I've been trying to find a way to talk about death. My father died two years ago, and I watched how death came into his life in a really sudden and urgent way. And um, it was weird, because he died of cancer and pretty much knew he was going to die 11 months before he did. But... I remember when death was really close, maybe four days away. He was sitting in our living room and we were talking about death for the first time and it felt like the most unimaginably foreign thing. I wanted to familiarize myself with death. I didn't want my death to be such a crash course like it seemed to have been for my dad. So I talked to people in their 70s and 80s I also interviewed my mom, and we just talked about death.
3: Get ready for your savior and fix your business right. You've got to ride that little black train to make this final ride. You still can barroom ladies dressed in your worldly pride. You've got to ride that little black train. It's coming in tonight.
7: I seem to recall now that it was about dying and death and uh, mortality, which is is something that has been heavily on my mind for a number of years now. I'm 82 years old, and I'm married to a man much younger than me, and we're madly in love. What can I tell you? (laughs) This is my tea cozy. Oh, that's uh, so <laughs> creative. So if you want to help yourself to whatever you might
9: be interested in. I met Daphne at an elder discussion group in Amherst, Massachusetts. Immediately after I presented my project to the group, she came up to me and told me she wanted to talk with me. I have two rooms that I rent upstairs.
7: So he came here in 1985 to live. He only lived here six months. And between 1985 and 1993, 94, he would come by with a red carnation on Valentine's Day, send me a card. I'd come home and I'd find a bottle of wine on the doorstep, things like that, that whole 10 years. And I never thought anything about it. Well, he was a Grateful Dead fan, And when Jerry Garcia died, he was heartbroken. I wrote him a note. I said, I understand that Jerry Garcia died. If you want to talk about it, come on over and have dinner with me, and we'll talk. And we set it up. And after dinner, we sat on the couch together talking about these things. He had written a poem on hearing about Jerry's death, and he read that poem to me. And one thing and another we were talking about, and suddenly he leaned over and kissed me. I was so, so amazed and surprised. I didn't know what to think It was the sweetest kiss I'd ever had in my life. <laughs> what can I tell you? And before you know it, he asked me to marry him. So that's, uh, that's why I've had mortality on my mind increasingly in the last two, three, four years. Who's the,
9: who's the pastel drawing of? Between the windows of the living room is uh,
7: my husband in his Grateful Dead days. Following right. the Grateful Dead all over the landscape. <laughs> my biggest fear is passing away and leaving him. And my biggest fear is that he'll be so heartbroken. I don't want to leave him. I'm having the best years of my life right now. But the actuarial statistics say that I will because he's only 50, 51 years old. You never give thought to somebody's dying. You never give thought to that. When you're young like you are, you think that will never happen to you. You look in the mirror and you look the same as you did yesterday, and I have news for you. Every day when you wake up and look in the mirror, it'll be the same person you saw yesterday because the change is so subtle. I looked in the mirror the other day and I saw my mother. Just her eyes, her shape of her face. So my advice to you as a young person, if there's anybody
9: you love, family or friends, for God's sake, say what's on your mind. Daphne cried a lot in this interview. I asked her if the topic was too difficult to talk about.
7: I don't know what in the world ever possessed you to choose this as a topic for your paper, but...
9: Throughout the project, people asked me if I was getting depressed by it, but I wasn't. I was fascinated by the subject of death. Not disturbed by it. In fact, the interview with my mom lasted for five hours. I sat there at our kitchen table pulling out every detail of her history with death because I'd heard the stories before, but never in the same way as she told them to me during that interview.
8: So can I tell you my history of this stuff? Please. So when I was 15, I fell in love, madly in love. He was my soulmate, I thought. and We could talk easily, we talked about things, which is not something you do back in Minnesota very much talking about emotions, just having a future, I think. That's Uh what was surprising. Because before that, it was just kind of like everything's the same. There's no future. So when you fall in love, you feel like you got a future. And so then he abruptly died when he fell from a pile of beams at a construction site where he shouldn't have been. And that was my first experience with death. Just turned 16. Yeah, it didn't have any purpose that I could see then very, very sad. I just lost my boyfriend and, and he was my one connection to getting out of my situation and my daily routines and daily misery.
6: After Richard died, I had a terrible depression and I was really looking at death. i was really thinking about collecting enough pills to kill myself. It's just, frankly, that's the truth. And in fact, it got so bad at one point that they actually put me into a mental hospital. Because uh, even though I had many other interests when Richard died, I was very tied up in my life with him. He was a source of uh, inspiration to me. You know, he saw beauty in many different places. And so I was dependent on him for that kind of motivation. These, this is it. i made better pictures. This one's really good. You like that one? What am I doing? Singing something.
9: This is my friend Ruth, and I met her three years ago. I interviewed her for a few projects over the years, and we've become good friends. I like that one. Her husband died six years ago of a heart attack.
6: I don't remember ever discussing death with my husband. So when he died, very, very suddenly, just very suddenly, like bang-o, I was not prepared at all.
9: By the time I interviewed Ruth, I was having a lot of conversations about death and recording them. And I didn't feel that much was changing in me. I was really questioning if bringing up my sad memories and the sad memories of other people was worth anything. So I asked Ruth how Richard's death might have been different if she had talked about it with him first.
6: Well, this is a bit painful. When he had the heart attack, we were at a conference on Star Island off the coast of New Hampshire. And we were, it's, we're in the middle of our morning workshops, and my brother-in-law came and said to me in my workshop, Richard is having some problems. You have to come. So I quickly rushed out, and there he was in the lobby, stretched out on a couch. And he said, it really hurts a lot, and I'm really scared. Well, I sat down, and I said, well, I'm right here, and I'm going to stay with you. And then they realized, the doctor realized it was beyond his control, and he had to call the Coast Guard, and, and it's an hour to shore, and the whole thing. And they wouldn't let me sit with him. So I really didn't... It's a very painful day, and I don't I don't want to talk about it too much, but he was scared. And I think that's an unfortunate thing. I don't know what he was scared of uh, exactly. He didn't say, but I guess he was scared of dying. If I'd talked with him beforehand, I think I, at least I could have said what I believe about something about life after death, and that this is what... The Christian faith is about, in part. Oh, I like that one. He was never quite sure that he believed all that stuff. Sure, yeah. This, I love this picture. This wasn't taken at the birthday. This is earlier with me and my little Benjamin singing happy birthday. <laughs> when another person dies, life does go on and can take a whole new form, which mine has done. In dealing with your own death, it's probably, I've got a, just a queasy feeling right in my stomach just as I said it, dealing with your own death you probably need to talk about it still a great mystery how are you doing
9: i told her that i was feeling sad that i had brought her to a place where she had a queasy feeling in her stomach
6: well don't that's yeah don't feel that way i mean you're helping people to face something that they don't want to face and you're facing it yourself and who's to say i mean i think probably it's a good thing but not pleasant
9: This was actually one of the hardest interviews, but she assured me again a few months later that our conversation was important for her and for me. Really, the only interview that I didn't question or feel some kind of guilt around afterwards was the one with my mom. She knew that I wanted to hear the stories, and I knew that she wanted to tell them. So the year after her boyfriend died, she was 17, her brother David died in Vietnam,
8: so then after my brother died, I knew there was no God because God wouldn't let this happen twice. So I completely cut God out of my life and became wild, joined a band, became a rock and roll star, sang at a birthday party once. <laughs> <laughs> after John died, I still you know, felt things, but they were all sad things. But after David died, it was more like, this is it, I'm putting up walls. <clears throat> that was my own survival mode because I couldn't be any sadder. So then that was the summertime. In the summertime there was always parties out in the fields, keggers. So I went to a lot of keggers. <clears throat> and I ended up getting pregnant. And then a year, well, nine months later, I have a baby, boy, and I'm thinking. I'm a jinx to boys, I better not keep this baby."
9: Before she gave the baby up for adoption, she named it John David after the previous two deaths. John was her boyfriend and David was her brother. It was really strange to hear my mom talk about a time in her life without God. When I was growing up, she was the one who took us to church and I always remembered her to be a pretty spiritual person. But the truth is, I never wanted God to come up in my interviews or the afterlife. I was interested in death's effect on our living, but God just kept coming up.
8: What I remember the most is that um, how your dad wasn't really sure what happened after you died. What did you remember from that interview?
9: I just feeling better, having had that conversation, having known what he was afraid of or what he thought was going to happen. And what did he think was going to happen? He thought we all had a spark of consciousness that maybe passed on, but that he didn't believe in harps and...
8: Souls. Souls. And energy. That's what he called it, an energy.
1: It seems like something's out there, but I don't think it's out there like we think it is in a like on a planet someplace where we're all going to go and be happy. It's it's a spiritual thing, and it's just in the air. That's my feeling of it. My name is George Michael. Born in 1927. I am 80 years old.
9: This is my mom's dad, my grandpa. He lives in Iowa.
1: Yeah, yeah. people say, It's so wonderful to go to heaven, but they're so afraid to go. I don't quite understand that. (laughs) When you get my age, you don't really expect any great thing to happen to you. You know, you just figure that one of these days is going to be your last day. You know, it's funny, like, uh, the animals seem to know that on your last leg, and they seem to know when they're on their last leg. I've seen dogs that actually go for a place to look down and sit down and die. I had one dog that had cancer, and he crawled in the weeds a couple of times, and that was his intention, to find a good place to lay down and die. And they seem to know that. And I suppose we do too, but we probably ignore it.
9: and knew he probably wasn't going to answer it, I decided to ask him concretely how he had learned to accept death.
1: Well, I, I don't know how to explain that. I just know that something is going to happen. And I'll have to leave you, people. And I hate to leave you. <laughs> <laughs> I won't see you grow up anymore. But uh, it's, you just accept it because, you know, it's uh, invulnerable. Religion is a very important part of it. To me, it is. And I hope that never changes. But I do remember when I was young, my dog died. And I just couldn't accept that dog dying. I couldn't understand why he had to go. I was close to that dog when I was a child. Then my father died. And my mother died of cancer. But uh, you knew they were on their way out. So you accepted it. But the dog, I didn't know he was going to (laughs) die. And my son too it was a hard one to accept.
2: It's going to happen, and you just got to accept the fact that it's going to happen. And when you're ready to die, die. Hello, Pat. Hi, how are Pad, well, now to lunch. Yeah, I'm going down pretty
10: soon. Yeah. Pretty okay. Soon. My name is Arthur Lundrigan.
2: I was born in St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada. I lived in a nursing home up in Northampton. I had a two-bedroom, and this old gentleman was in the room next to me. And I woke up one day, and I came out and got some breakfast and that, and I went back in again, and they were covering him up with a sheet. He died. So that didn't bother me. Nothing seemed to bother me. So he brought another old guy in there, and his wife used to come in every day and talk to him. So I got to know him and got to know her. And about two days later, he died. So they took him away, and they brought in another guy. He only lasted a day, and he died. <laughs> but this is a bad room, I said. I, you should people shouldn't bring anybody in here. I said, I'm killing them all.
9: Arthur Lumbergan, I interviewed you? him in a sunny room at the Holyoke Geriatric Center, and I remember that as the nurse led me down toward it, I tried to look comfortable. Every 10 feet or so, we would pass another resident, and none of them altered their faces as I went by, but all of them just followed me with their
5: eyes.
3: Hello, Leona. Hey. How do
5: you know me? How do I know you? Yeah.
2: I know you a long time, Leona.
5: Yeah.
2: (laughs) I don't want to die in here. I don't want to die in a nursing home. I wouldn't let my wife go in a nursing home. And I don't want to die in a nursing home. Now, I can't leave this home unless somebody comes here and finds me out. I like picnics, I like to go fishing, I like to go swimming, you know. I just want to do it up until the time I die. Or until I can't do it anymore. And you can't do it here in this nursing home. I want to get out.
0: Well, you've
2: got nice company today. I've got the best company there is <laughs>
9: You know, one thing you said earlier that I thought was really interesting was that you've never really let your own death bother you very much.
2: I don't see any reason to be afraid of it. I can't stop it. It's going to come, and you'll leave a legacy. on my wife's headstone, her name is there, and her birthday and her date. Then my name is there, at my birthday, down below. Is they loved all their lives, and we have.
8: My what a lovely day! day. day.
11: Mary,
8: remember the time you buried the little shrew next to me when I was working out in the garden, so it wouldn't be lonely. I don't remember it. Mm. It was very matter of fact. That's that's interesting how you've taken the death matter of factly. The shrew and the dog. (laughs) That you were in the back there holding the dog as you went to the the vet.
9: You weren't around. I wasn't around, but
8: Dad told me you were. We're just very solid. Just kind of, yep, just like a rock. <laughs> <laughs> and then I remember coming up the next day after you you stayed upstairs with him that night. And then I went up the next day and I knew that that was the day he was going to die. But he could still hear us. That was nice. And I know he was very glad that we were there. How do you know? Because over this la- that last year... He realized that his three members of his family were all that really mattered. That was his real
9: life. How did you know he felt that way?
8: It was um the peace that he felt with it, I think. You could see peace
9: when he was dying?
8: Or the last last week or last few days, yeah. Wow. I didn't see peace. You saw chaos?
9: And resistance.
8: And resistance?
9: Isn't that weird? I saw chaos. But I also saw peace there, too. I saw a certain ambiguity, acceptance. I remember saying, we're sad you're leaving, Dad. He was in his chaotic, you know, out-of-head space. And he said, well, life is short, Nora. That's all he said. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Have a nice day. (laughs) So, Mom, after having lived this long, what do you still not know about mortality and dying? Everything.
11: Really?
8: Yeah. What do I know about it? <laughs> that it happens to everyone. That's what I know about it. And then it's something that involves more than just that person.
9: Mom, will you tell me what we're doing today? Yes. Yes. We have come all the way
8: out from Bainbridge to take your dad's ashes to the beach and spread them there, hopefully to go out to the ocean. Meanwhile, this last year and a half, he's been sitting in the fireplace upstairs. There's no other ashes in there, just his ashes. And um, I think it's gonna be a little difficult even though it's been a year and a half. I also want to comment that he's very heavy and very grainy.
9: I don't know if death will be less surprising because I've had all these conversations about it. I don't know if it will feel as foreign as it did when my dad died. How could I know? To me now, death is not an event to make less surprising or to avoid or to understand or to put a purpose to. It's a conversation to keep having. It's a conversation that began four days before he died and keeps going now, and it's one that I hope to keep having.
3: This is where we went camping
8: all the time.
9: At the very end,
8: down here.
7: Okay, girls.
3: black train a-coming, coming down the track. You gotta ride that little black train, but it ain't gonna bring you back. You may be a barroom gambler and cheat your way through life, but you can't cheat that little black train or beat this final
0: Little Black Train was produced by Nora Harrington as part of her senior thesis at Hampshire College. And while she does say at the very end of the piece that death is something to continue talking about, she also admitted in an interview with us that she really hasn't been able to do that because it's just such a hard subject to bring up. To read an interview with Nora and to find a link to her senior paper on documentary radio, visit thirdcoastfestival.org.
3: All of you listening to the instructions on this record are now going to hold a seance. Make certain that before you begin, you have certain ideal conditions. For one thing, have the room dimly lit. Four or more of you should now sit evenly distributed around a table.
0: Now we move beyond death to life after death, to ghosts, in a graveyard, and a young producer determined to find some. While in New Orleans, Katie Mingle poked around a pauper's graveyard, even spent a night there, hoping for some kind of paranormal encounter. Instead, she befriended some gravediggers and learned a few truths about life and death in the Big Easy. Here's The Dead Can't Do You Nothing.
11: I've never seen a ghost. I'm one of those people that doesn't have a single one of my own ghost stories. A friend once told me, you aren't open enough psychically for seeing ghosts. What can I do, I asked, to be more open? Spend more time near them, was her answer. I'm sitting in Holt Cemetery. It is uh, August 1st. It's the middle of the day. My friend Casey told me I should come here to the Popper's Graveyard in Mid-City, New Orleans. He told me how it was beautiful and that the markers were mostly handmade. He told me the graves are so shallow you can find bones sticking up from the ground. Here's a gravestone that I like. It has has a candy cane in the ground, and the gravestone is made out of one of those things that keeps your tires from rolling forward in the parking lot and then it says R.I.P. So now, now I'm, I'm approaching the one that everyone notices, the one that you can't help but notice. It's covered in chicken wire and various pieces of metal grates and uh, there's like part of a bed frame. There's a, a wicker chair, stuffed animals, a ceramic owl. There's an empty red bucket. Um, it looks like a fort that you would build out of like all the stuff in the garage. And actually, somebody just got here, which is totally weird because no one ever seems to come here. A family has just pulled up in a little red car. I watch two little boys jump out and run down the road toward a grave. I can hear them shouting, It's that one! No, no, it's that one! I watch them for a little while, and finally, I muster the courage to go and talk oh, to them. I miss you,
10: Daddy. Me too. He was 26, on 27.
11: Does he didn't make his
10: birthday yet. He got killed on February 4th, 2006. He got buried here on the what? 14th Valentine's Day.
11: They're visiting her son's grave, the kid's father. I asked the older kid, the 8-year-old, what he remembers about his dad. His grandmother is urging him on, but he's nervous and his voice shakes. I'm evil.
10: used to go home any, um, any place. used to go hang out anywhere. What did your daddy teach you? He teach you? He teach us. Not to be disrespectful. Obey.
11: The grandmother gestures toward my microphone. She tells him to tell his dad he loves him and misses him.
10: I love him, but... I know. Your daddy might be here,
11: your boy. Talk. Ain't no but in love, his grandmother tells him. But the boy doesn't seem convinced. And secretly, I want to pull this little round faced boy away from his grandmother for a minute. But what? I want to ask him and let him tell me everything.
5: Y están esperando que a la medianoche el muerto salga y algo ahí con ellos. Today,
11: I'm here with Antonio. We both work here now doing post-Katrina construction. He's telling me about the Day of the Dead in Mexico. In New Orleans, they also celebrate the Day of the Dead, but it's called All Saints Day. The idea is the same, though. The family gathers around the grave to clean up and redecorate, to talk about their dead and remember. Sometimes they prepare a picnic, and they even set a place for the deceased. My friend Antonio grew up in a rural area outside of Mexico City. In the neighborhood where he grew up, if someone died, the men in the neighborhood had to bury the body in the family plot eight feet down. This is how it's done in New Orleans, too. All the family goes in one plot, but here the graves are a shallow two feet, or the dead are buried in above-ground tombs. Two feet—that's all you get before you hit water. In New Orleans, the dead are close; they are very close. I've heard Red Nelson is the man to talk to about the New Orleans city cemeteries. That he has worked in them for twenty years and knows all the stories. No, not twenty.
5: No, thirty-one.
11: Mister Nelson is not very happy to be talking to me. In fact, it seems he would have rather I arrived the way most of his visitors do. I mean, in a casket. During our interview, he crunches on pork rinds and eyes me suspiciously. He also seems to doze off a few times. Uh, The Times-Picayune just did a story about gravediggers no longer being in the city budget that Mr. Nelson didn't appreciate. But I'm not looking for that story. I'm looking for ghost stories. So I asked the gravediggers...
3: Ghosts. I don't believe in ghosts. That's our imaginary thing. you're a strong-minded person and and mind is not not weak, you wouldn't have to worry about no ghosts. Dead people can't
2: do you nothing. It's the live people around here can do. It's very deadly. Walking in these streets, that's your problem. I just didn't know where you were coming. I thought I said I
3: wasn't.
11: My friends Casey and Laura and I have been talking for a while about spending the night in Holt Cemetery. I think it would be the most terrifying thing to ever happen, Casey said. Yeah, totally. We should do it, I said. See,
3: like could be guys right over there
11: us. We sneak in like teenagers, breaking curfew, climbing swiftly over the fence, avoiding headlights, dashing across the cemetery in the lit-up places. We set out our tarp under one of the giant oak trees in the middle of the cemetery and start telling ghost stories.
0: One night she woke up and he was there and he was like, Show me the baby.
5: And that she took him into my room where I was sleeping in a grave. Like I totally felt it. Like I knew when it was in the room and I knew it wanted to be close to me. And like it kept like getting, it would like lay down with me or it would like lay on top of me.
11: We all know why we're there. We're there for the same reason people watch movies like The Exorcist just to utterly horrify themselves. We get right to the point. We talk about our biggest fears. We talk about dying and getting old and being kidnapped and Satan. But we never get scared. The cemetery is just peaceful. That's it. No zombies, no ghosts, no one's head spun around. It's almost disappointingly tranquil. It's another hot day in New Orleans. I'm back at Holt Cemetery for the last time. My grave digger friends are in the office. They're leaned back against the wall in uncomfortable wooden chairs. There's no fan or air conditioning in the office, and the air is heavy and damp. They don't talk to each other. They just mess around with their cell phones and doze in and out of sleep. Hello? All oh, right, hey, it's you guys. Yeah. Remember me? Yeah. Are you digging a grave out here today? Yeah. They're waiting for a burial at 2. I ask if I can wait there with them.
2: They're running late, huh? You don't No. How you doing? I'm good,
1: how you doing?
11: Oh, I'm making out.
1: two making out. To the one they gonna climb
2: back there. That boy got killed. I don't like to be around there when somebody got killed.
11: How old was he, Dina?
2: Old be about 19.
11: Finally, the first car arrives. The gravediggers walk across the cemetery to the grave they have already dug. I stay behind the iron cage door and watch the people show up. They are greeting each other and talking cordially. The funeral starts and I stand back near the hearse, which still has its engine running. I can hear the preacher bellowing a prayer. A woman is wailing with grief. At the end, they release a white dove from a cage, and everyone applauds. The whole thing is over within minutes, and all the people begin to walk back to their cars. I stay with the gravediggers.
2: So I'll let up again.
11: One of the gravediggers gestures toward the hole, which is full of muddy water. They tell me they're glad the family didn't wait to see the casket being put in.
3: Watch you stand over where you don't go in. So. Come on. I
11: picture his young face under the lid of the casket. I picture him rocking back and forth in there. I picture him in a black suit and a white shirt. And I wonder if he is one of the boys from the recent string of shootings in New Orleans. The white dove is sitting in the tree above me, looking confused. I think about all of the people buried here, their untold stories, their unfinished lives swallowed up in water, and suddenly, for the first time in Holt Cemetery, I feel afraid, haunted. I say goodbye to the gravediggers and to Mr. Nelson. I tell them I won't be back again, and they smile for the first time. And I think of the little boy who said about his father, I love him, but... And I think again, but what...
0: The Dead Can't Do You Nothing was produced by Katie Mingle, winner of the 2007 Third Coast Festival Best New Artist Award. Katie is now teaching documentary and new media skills to high school kids at Uplift Community School in Chicago. To see some of Katie's pictures from Holt Cemetery in New Orleans, visit our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to Resound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxai. Do you have something to say about the stories we air? Then we want to hear it. Write to us at resound at ThirdCoastFestival.org.
1: To Andrew, his mother was almost the whole world a great ideal, a source of inspiration, and a fountain of approval. And she liked the radio. In her house, the radio was always playing. But the day she died, a strange thing happened. A coincidence. The radio stopped playing. Such a simple coincidence can mean a great deal to the imaginative and superstitious mind of a child. In his loneliness and out of his longing, an idea occurred to Andrew. If he could fix his mother's radio, perhaps he could bring her back
7: to life. What you doing, fixing the radio? I gotta fix the volume control. I can hear it. I can even dance to it. It's on. It's on. You fixed it.
1: This was the magic moment for Andrew, the moment he believed his mother would reappear, would come walking through that door.
7: It ought to work now.
0: When someone dies, when someone is born, it's a little like the world stops turning for the people who are most closely affected. You can't help but think about the big questions. Who are we? What's life about? Why are we here? These things were on the mind of producer Karen Michelle when she moved to Pleasant Valley, New York, right after 9-11. She wanted to find out what was really important to people at this very critical time. So she devised three very short, very big questions that got to the heart of people's central beliefs. And then she started asking them. There were three parameters
4: and three questions. I wanted to talk to people who lived within 30 miles of me a normal driving distance to do much of anything from my home in, get this, Pleasant Valley, New York. I wanted to talk to a number of people at actual places, not just haphazardly roam the streets trolling for subjects. And I wanted to ask the same three short, big questions. What do you live for? What would you
0: die for? And what would you kill for? What do I live for? Um, Well, I live for love... The love of my family, my wife, my friends. I live for the discovery of beauty in art and in people. And I live for my own personal pursuit of truth.
4: His answer was, to a large degree, mine too. Carl Van Brunt runs the Van Brunt Gallery on Main Street in Beacon, New York. Beacon is along the Hudson River, more than 20 miles south of me. Once called the hat-making capital of the East, it's been in economic decline for decades until artists found a place and galleries and then a big art museum came in and Beacon is coming up again, big time. The mix both inside and outside the Van Brunt Gallery on a drizzly Saturday afternoon was of locals and art tourists up from New York City. What do I live for? To be a good mom, I'd say, and be a good wife. Yeah, that's what I would live for. Uh-huh. Uh huh. What would you die for? I would die uh, to keep my integrity if I had to, really, yeah. And what would you kill for? There's no reason I would kill, really. There's no reason I'd kill. Took me a second, but I got it, yeah. There's no reason I would kill.
8: I have breast cancer, and what I live for is to see my um, children actualize themselves. What would I die for? (laughs) given that I just faced that and realized I wouldn't die for my work and I I, I, I would not choose to die for anything I cannot answer that question the honest thing is I would struggle and not die (laughs) I'm sorry
4: I'd barely begun the project and the answers were already mighty heavy and thoughtful
11: nature, friends, kids
4: Family came up a lot as reasons for living, dying, and killing. For a person to start funny and then get unfunny happened often, too. (laughs) Could you start off with an easier question? (laughs) There was a time when I might have answered
3: that I live for seeing the Orioles win any game against the Yankees, but I've gotten over that, and I would have to say that I probably live for...
0: A sense of community more than anything.
3: Family, friends, extending out to the
4: larger community. Those are the things that I care about the most. But he wouldn't kill for any of them. I started thinking that we were a nation of pacifists. But I forgot about all the gun and ammo stores in the Hudson Valley. I'm a hunter, so I own a deer.
3: And I feed the family with deer every November. So that's what I kill for. But... Sometimes it's necessary to kill in order to live. One perpetuates the other. One don't exist without the other.
4: I would live for freedom, justice, and liberty. I would die for my country, and I would kill for justice.
1: Nothing, nothing.
4: I used to think that I would die for
6: a lot, you know, a cause, this or that. As history keeps repeating itself, I'm not sure I would want to actually take the plunge and die for something.
4: Though she acknowledged that maybe she'd kill for... A delicious dinner. <laughs> Victory 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 today Ebenezer Baptist Church is in a large octagonal building in the city of Poughkeepsie, about 12 miles southwest of where I live. At a Sunday service, there were about half again as many people up on stage as in the congregation. Though it was in the 90s outside and humid, the worshipers came dressed. Wide-brimmed hats on many of the women, suits and ties for the men. The Reverend E. Clayton Wade is the pastor. She's the
1: resident of Pleasant Valley. She's come here this morning.
4: Reverend Um, Wade introduced me from the pulpit. We'd met before services. He didn't want to give his answers to the questions. There's
1: three questions that they're putting out to the individuals. First of all, what are you willing to live
3: for? What are you willing to die for? And what are you willing to kill for? Issues facing America.
4: He told the congregants to talk with me after services in the vestibule. It was a noisy, crowded place to be, with everyone shaking hands and greeting and generally being happy to see each other. One mother said her son wanted to talk to me. He said he lived for his family, aunts, uncles, step-siblings and cousins included, would die for everybody in the world and without a trace of irony that he would kill for
5: peace on earth
11: oh i live for
5: god and people what would i die for
0: for my salvation yes for my salvation yeah what would you kill for well now that's the hard part that's the hardest one of all that's the hardest one of all
1: I would die for Jesus, who would, died for me, too.
0: What
4: would you kill for?
1: I'm not killing. <laughs> no, shalt shall not kill, so I'm not going to kill No way. Not at all.
4: I live daily to serve God and to be a Christian and to work for him and to treat my fellow man good and to forgive And I love everybody. I love everybody. Let me kiss you this way. It's Thursday, uh, August 14th, 2003. I'm at the Poughkeepsie Farmers Market, just across from Vassar College. It is 2 o'clock in the afternoon. How much is your corn? Corn is four twenty-five a dozen, six for two and a quarter. It came out of the field about eleven thirty.
7: Six for how much? Two and a quarter.
4: These people live off of what they grow and I make. It's the philosophy of the soil and the stove. Excuse me, I'm walking around asking people a few questions. May I talk with you? Yeah. What do you sell here? I sell sugar-free pastries and pastries with sugar.
10: Whatever anybody wants, they get. I have white bread, sugar-free, carrot cake that's sugar-free, zucchini that's sugar-free.
4: She had gray hair pulled back, bangs, large bifocals. A good-sized man with tinted glasses sat in a camp chair next to her, facing slightly away from the baked goods, reading. What do you live for?
10: What do I live for? Mainly to to take care of my husband because he's so wonderful to me. He gives me everything I want and he doesn't smoke and he doesn't drink. All he does is swear once in a while. <laughs> He's very good to me.
4: And what would you die for? I'd die to saving him. How about what would you kill for? I'd kill for him too. This for me was real family. I've been listening to people tell me that family was all that mattered to them. But other than listing who that meant, no one had yet been so succinct or somehow genuine as this woman. She and her husband had been together 27 years.
10: And it's going to be the rest of our lives. I know that. It was instant love. If we first seen each other, that was it. We both fell in love. The day I met him, I knew I was going to marry him. I was married three times before he was married three times before. I was never going to get married again, but I knew he was, he was the man meant for me. That's all. There's one person for each person in this world. And sometimes people meet them late in life, but I just didn't know enough to wait around. (laughs) They met in a bar. We haven't drank in 20 years now, either one of us. And we're happier, you know, taking care of each other.
7: What should I sing, Mary? You want me to sing? Oh, you, you have a she nice She told boy. me to
4: sing, far, far away.
7: That's where I'm going.
4: We are at, in Tritown town nice Senior Center in the American Legion Hall okay,
10: on Degama Road
7: in Pleasant Valley.
10: Working? You want me to sing a song? Yeah,
7: please. Sure. What should I sing, Mary? Oh, that one you got your own words to. let me call you sweetheart? Yes. Yeah. Let me call you sweetheart, said a boy to a girl as they danced so gaily, and her head was in a whirl. Let me have your address and your phone number two. When I reach the city, I will call on you. Oh, I love to be happy, just be happy and healthy. And everything comes natural. What will I die for? I don't think I'll die for anything. I want to keep on living.
4: How
7: old are you? 85. I'll be 89 a couple of months. And um, I l-
6: I'm living to get my own apartment.
7: I don't know, just want to live.
6: <laughs> my next
3: birthday is 90. Still want to live. What do I live for? Good question, really. I don't know, honest. I lost my wife two years ago, and I keep saying to myself, what do I live for? You're right. She used to say to me, I wish we died together. I said, oh, please, I'm not ready yet. <laughs> she couldn't understand when I told her that. I'm not ready for that yet.
4: Is there anything you'd kill for?
3: No. No, I did that in the Army. I can't say that I enjoyed it. World War II? Yeah, I was a machine gunner. I went all through France, Germany, Austria. That's a long time ago, huh? Yeah, things you like to forget, you know? How old are you? 87. Don't I look it?
7: This This is going to be a long job. Oh, this is
10: a big monkey. He needs a lot of
4: air. The man sat by himself as the other seniors, all women, made decorations for a party the next day. A luau theme, they said. So I'm not sure why they were inflating a human-sized monkey holding a banana, but they were having a great time doing it. There was a party of another sort at the Millbrook Winery, 12 miles north of my home and about 20 north of the seniors. A group of what looked to be friends in their 20s, including a pair of identical twins, poured out of a minivan, ready to sample the award-winning wines.
6: Okay, you can ask. Three questions questions. have been granted unto you.
0: Thank
4: you. Okay, what do you live for? Oh, God, those kind of questions, really?
10: Anybody?
5: Anybody? What do you live for?
10: What do you live for? I don't know. I you live d- for sex. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, no, it's forget honest. about it. It's you live for you know to That's a good time true. with your friends.
0: Okay. To make it mean? through
10: life, my, you know, my, see what's gonna bring to you, so? and enjoy while you're at it. Woohoo!
8: Okay, what would
4: you die for?
10: What would I die for? Myself. I don't know. You would die for. I
4: die for love. I die for love. <laughs> not
10: her answer, man. What would you die for? Like really? Like there could be like something that's there and I would die for? Or
4: an idea?
10: I don't know, man, it's, you know, it's a, oh, that's like idea stuff, you know, it's all theory, you know, the things that you could die for. It's not really like, you know, you're going to die for something that's.
5: I'm glad you're still
0: here, I don't know. are you? What would you kill for? What
10: would I kill for? Who? I don't know, it would have to be like a spare of the moment thing, you know? You present with the situation right then and there. You know? Three months now. So it's kind of hard to tell.
11: I'm James. Hi,
10: James. Or something like that.
0: Live, Die, Kill was produced by Karen Michelle, an independent producer currently living in upstate New York. When we asked Karen her own questions, here's what she said. I live to be able to ask questions.
4: No, I'm serious. I I realized very early in my life that when I was about four, that I was here to, uh, to pay attention, to observe. And then when I got older, I was like, well, what does that mean? And it evolved into finding, really, the right livelihood for me, which is uh, work that enables me to be nosy. I get to ask questions, and then, even more importantly, I get to tell other people what I've found out. I would die if I felt that there was no more suffering in this world, and my being here was was done, there was nothing. I, I live, really, to every day not add to the suffering in the planet to do one small thing, if I can, to make things better. So I would die if I felt that had been accomplished. So you're going to see me for a long, long time. Uh, and I kill nothing. If a mosquito lands on me, I, I kind of shush it away. I, I don't kill.
5: Free Sound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is hosted by Gwen Maxi, produced by Delaney Hall, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world, and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional Funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for Resound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.